Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. My guest today is making his second appearance on our show. Ichabod Ebenezer describes himself as genre promiscuous, and we'll look at some of his works, and in particular, a collection of short stories, Beyond the Rail and Other Nightmares. He joins us from Redmond, Washington, and Ichabod, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, you have been associated with suspense, the macabre, and so forth, and I've seen that through so much of your writings, but uh, I love the term genre promiscuous. How do you describe your writing style? Yeah, well, so that's my way of not describing it, really. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm into anything that's speculative. So mystery, sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Um, but I don't want to get tied down to any one particular genre. So I, I think of myself more like uh, the Stephen King or the Neil Gaiman, who can write a kid's book well, one day and then make a, a blockbuster movie the next. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I like too, is I, I, I find myself as my style changes. This has just happened over the last several years. It's like, I want to try different things and I want to branch out into different stuff because my ideas, they don't fit into a box. Have you ever, you ever have that feeling like they're trying to some, you know, they're trying to stuff you into a box or a straitjacket or something. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the, Um, main pieces of advice that you want to get is to niche down. And I think that's great advice for most people. Um, When you find your audience, they're going to like a certain thing. And if you keep pumping out that thing, they will continue to like you. And it makes total sense. But at the same time, I've got just all these ideas in different directions swimming through my head. And I don't know what I would do with them if I didn't write them down. And that's the same thing for me. Uh, write them down, though. I've I've had the unfortunate thing of constantly like trying to sleep, and in the middle of the night, here comes an idea. And I finally just got to the point as I grew older. I just said, okay, if it comes back to me tomorrow, then it was a good idea. I just <laughs> I try to leave it like that. But no, how does it feel like like when you get those ideas? Do you have like a, um, when you get inspired, do you have a feeling? Is there something that just suddenly compels you to, you have to sit down and write this down or put the, the notes in your phone? Uh, it can certainly be that way. So I'm always writing something and, uh, and I'm compelled to write what I'm doing right now, but then the other idea will pop into the head. And so the way I've learned to manage that is just to quickly outline as much as I can about this other idea mm-hmm. and then my brain will let it go a little bit to pick it up later. Yeah. And then it's uh, just sort of like, you know, sort of sorting out through all of these notes and stuff. And uh, do you have like uh, stacks of notebooks and stuff? Cause I have, I have them all over my house. <laughs> See, I used to, but uh, I find that my hand cramps too badly to do that anymore. So mm-hmm. everything's electronic. Everything gets typed in these days. Well, that's cool. But I, 
<laughs> I have three backup copies, though, just to be sure. Oh, good. Oh, very good. Well, let's take a look at Beyond the Rail. Now, this is a really intriguing series of stories. And were these all written in a specific period over a period of time? How did you compile them? Uh, no, actually, these are stories for the most part that I sent out to uh, publications uh, during calls for specific uh, submissions. Like uh, I do mention at the back of the book that two of them were were stories that I wrote um, where they were looking for something in the style of Stephen King. I only ended up uh, submitting one of those. But, uh, yeah, most of these are from calls along those lines. And some of them have been published before, but the majority of them are newly crafted for the book. Mm -hmm. And how difficult is it to fit a series together? It's like sort of like choosing tracks for an album. It's like, how do I make it flow? What, what was your, what was your design for that? Yeah. So I had to make sure that, uh, that the books, I mean, the stories did fit a certain theme when putting them out there, or at least, you know, they meandered between themes in such a way that it made a coherent whole. Um, so out of all the stories that I was looking at, these were the ones that were most, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly, but the, the essence I was going for. Mm -hmm. And the thing too, is like you, like a lot of, I, I can't characterize you as to other suspense writers. I don't read an awful lot of it myself to be perfectly honest, but the ones I've come across, there's these dips into levels and you sort of go into there's there's certain levels of okay this is going to scare people here's the setting that's going to scare people who don't normally read this and then suddenly here's here's like a plot here's a point here's a vehicle and then there's these odd little turns in the labyrinth that you give to a number of these is this something that you're conscious of have other people brought it up uh, yeah, so whenever, if, if you're writing a novel, right, you have to manage the highs and the lows. You, you balance out intense action with some uh, slower scenes where people process what just happened, right. things like that. So when I was putting together this, the collection of stories, I l wanted to think along the same lines. Now, I'm, I'm always interested in hearing what people pulled out of it. Because I really think that writing is never really complete until it's been read. Um, and that the reader puts nearly as much into it as the author did themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I can say for sure that every uh, twist of the labyrinth that you saw was something that I intentionally put in. But I'm very glad to hear it was there. Well, the uh, first story, Sing Along, really kicked off the collection well. And I love what it comes through is it's, it starts with, it's like a theft, and it turns out to be the theft of a car. And then what happens to the thief is so amazing. I was like, <laughs> without giving it all away, tell us about the, the idea behind that story, because it's so, it's, it's cool, and yet it's also incredibly creepy, and I loved that. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I liked the idea of 
a, a curse that was insidious enough that it just seemed, you know, at first, like it was a minor inconvenience. Right. And, uh, and as it continues on, of course, it becomes the guy's entire life. Um, but also this idea of transferring the curse was what initially appealed to me, um, that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't sell it, you couldn't give it away. The other party had to actively steal it from you. And that is such an interesting thing. I, you, you did touch on curses in a couple of stories, but this one was so unique also in that what the thief is hearing out of the car is not what other people hear. And it's, and it's like he sort of is just slowly going mad. He's perfectly conscious and cognizant and aware of it. And yet at the same time, you're sort of walking along in the shoes and this man is like, it's almost like, what's he going to do? It was just, it was really interesting. And you were talking about Stephen King and for some reason I kept thinking, Christine, I'm not sure that really fits, but I don't know if you had that in mind or not, or what was happening there, but there was a Stephen Kingish kind of feel to this, this guy with this internal madness going on. I, I can see that, and I thank you for the comparison. Um, but yeah, it, it's also quite different because uh, it wasn't the car behaving badly or, or anything along those lines. So, Well, we're going to talk a few uh, more of these uh, pieces when we come back. We're speaking with Ichabod Ebenezer, talking about his new collection, Beyond the Rail and Other Nightmares. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of authors from many genres. If you are into horror, thrillers, or fantasy, check out our Hellbender Books imprint, Thomas Malafarina's Maliformed Reality series, The Thirteenth Child by Nick Korolev, The State Changers series by Chris Fenwick, or the psychological thrillers of Keith Rommel. Find these and other works at the Hellbender Books tab and all works of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Our guest is Ichabod Ebenezer, author of the collection Beyond the Rail and Other Nightmares. And we've begun with a very uh, scary and slowly building scary story. Uh, there's a couple of others in here that draw on different uh, elements, uh, sort of a steampunkish one, Fertile Minds. You create this very strong female character named Chelsea, um, yeah. sort of out of her time. And there's elements of Sherlock Holmes with what this lady is up to. And it's, uh, was this, this seems like it was sort of like stepping into those different territories. Tell us about Chelsea and how she came about and what is she up to? <laughs> well, Chelsea is a character that I just absolutely loved from her very inception. Uh, so much so that when I finished the story, I almost immediately wanted to just write more. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that we'll be seeing her again. That's good. I was going to ask that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, she is an adventurer. Uh, she is an adventuress and, uh, she's a bit of an alchemist all in, uh, Victorian London. Um, and she, uh, inherited some deal of wealth from her father who was highly respected. Uh, but at the same time, she's not allowed to do a lot of what she wants to because she's a woman in those times. Mm -hmm. But she's highly capable. And what was she looking for? Because there was just this, as she navigates this, you know, the, the, the male-dominated era, there's sort of 
these characters, and they're not just stock characters either. They're most of them seem a bit stuffy here and there, but that's Victorian England. And yet at the same time, there's a certain grudging respect for this woman. And yet at the same time, they're like almost a little threatened by her. Yeah. So she's, uh, you know, she's more than happy to speak her mind and has done so at, uh, inconvenient times for some of the men in this story. Uh, and you know whether she's right or wrong, that's hardly important. It's the fact that she's gotten up and spoken, uh, and she is mostly just out for adventure and uh, to right any kind of wrongs. In fact, I think of her more like an Indiana Jones character than mm-hmm. a, a Sherlock Holmes, okay. despite the fact that a lot of mystery comes into it. I could see that in terms of there's that fearlessness and that willing to jump in. Yeah. And it's uh, and that's a question that's sort of maybe we're veering off a little bit, but uh, there's been a lot of talk and I have no problem with it because most of my protagonists are female and I don't know why, but that's just how it is. Um, the strong female character isn't just a trope and it isn't just a stereotype. Uh, I've, come across some fantastic work in the last several years where we're seeing female characters really step up and take their place. And despite the detractions of some, it's not for its own sake. There's just people are finding their way to create interesting female characters that can take a lead, that can take charge. And as I say, mine, they just come to me. I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm just, or anything. I'm not saying anything about myself. I'm just saying, they come to me. How do you feel about that? Um, well, it's much the same way. I come up with characters first, and uh, and gender's just one aspect of that. Um, I She needed to be female for this, uh, because in Victorian London, there are all these expectations, and we needed somebody who was going to subvert those expectations. Right and kind of work below the radar in some aspects. And I thought she'd have to either be a child or a woman for this. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as I started coming up with her, she was the perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And Um, do go on. Yeah, but at the same time, um, what you want to avoid when you're creating the strong female characters is somebody who's just too perfect. Right. Or just does what the men do. Right. You want to make sure that her gender is an important part to her, even if it isn't an important part to the story. Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting thing for me was um, when I began serious writing about 15 years ago, you know, working with a female character, I have a template in front of me and I began to realize that the template was too perfect. It was an actual other character that someone created. And a friend of mine said to me, she's too perfect. She's too nice. She's too forgiving. She's too willing to let people step on her. And I thought, I can't let that happen. And I try to find, and I, I think for me, a lot of character, and the same thing for me, it's the characters come. Sometimes I'll have a story idea, but I have no clue where it's going. And then the characters just start, sort of showing up. <laughs> Have you ever had that? It's like I 
sometimes I just find myself sketching out an idea that I'm seeing in my head. And sometimes I have a character just come in and sit down in front of me. It's like, here I am, write something for me. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> yeah, for no, absolutely. Some stories come up from uh, an idea of the place, the environment. Some stories come up from a plot cue. Uh, you know, government forces doing this kind of thing. Who is going to react? And then the characters start to show up. And sometimes it's the characters themselves. Um, I've had ideas come up from just a snatch of dialogue that I imagine in my head. Mm -hmm. So that's generally the, the characters flow from that. And then the, the situation that they're in. And then the world building begins. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, any one of those three. Well, there's an interesting thing. Uh, building of worlds. You built unique ones. Most of them are certainly recognizable. Uh, we have to jump to one, and it's entitled The Raven. And there's a certain amount of Edgar Allan Poe here, but you dive into the cyber world and cryptocurrency, and it's like, now current events always open up a new door. What happened here? This was a really, this was a, this was one I was like, I'm just scaling through it going, Oh, God, what's he done now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I had to balance the steampunk with a little bit of cyberpunk. And it wasn't too much cyberpunk. There's there's in, in, uh, bits of the Matrix in there mm -hmm. um, because of what's going on and how there's this uh, secret that people know about. And it's just underneath everybody else's recognition. Um, but at the same time, this one's really a ghost story. Yeah, and I did see that. It was like there's this, and it's sort of like there's a search for someone, but at the same time, I think it, I think it kind of comes back around maybe to sing along a little bit. There's like, you have this person has has been drawn in, and now he's got to try to find a way out or something. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, the the guy was looking to uh, the the hero of this story is just looking to simplify his life. He had the the high stress. Um, constant ship dates atmosphere of a software developer and he had to back away from all that and just become a barista <laughs> but of course that's when he's pulled back into a world that's even deeper than he realized mm -hmm. and it's one where he you just sort of feel the frantic nature of what he's going through and that's one of the uh, the other neat things about short stories is like you can you can put an intense amount in just a few pages and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's something that I always loved in reading it. Uh, to pull back Stephen King, I always liked his short story collections more than anything else, because when I was getting ready to bed and I needed something to take my mind off the day, mm -hmm. I could pick a story just based on its length in the book and be able to get through it in a night. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you one thing about it because there's a certain amount of gore and creepy stuff going on. How difficult is it to paint that picture in that context of the gripping context? I find as I write, when I have, I have a character in an unpublished novel that has visions and mm -hmm. I have to inject a fair amount of Gabriel Garcia Marquez in it, but it has to come back over time. I have to come back to it again and again and be like, this doesn't make sense, but it's not supposed to. How is it for painting that kind of thing for you? 
Um, yeah, sometimes you have to 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 really make people understand the characters that you've created. You have to go to a certain depth of understanding these characters. And some of them are capable of things that are fairly unimaginable. Um, but at the same time, I don't like to go too much into uh, the gore and things like that. I'll tell you enough within this course of the story that you know it's there and leave the rest for your imagination to fill in. I think that's something Vincent Price said a long time ago, and I, I can't remember. I read this, and I don't remember when he actually said it, but he had said that he felt that horror had kind of lost its edge in that it's, he, I think he said it's what you don't see that scares you most. You can, you can see certain things and you can build that suspense, but he says today it's, it's all the blood, it's the violence, and you see it. And he says that's one thing, but he says the real terror is not knowing what's going to happen and what you do not see. And, and I wonder if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. And I think audiences agree with you. I, one of the first things they tell you about horror is that the primary sin is revealing the monster too soon. Mm -hmm. And you, you see a... Uh, you go out and watch a movie, and in the first 15 minutes, you see the monster just fully in the light and the rest. And for the rest of it, you're not really scared of that anymore. It starts to look cheesy. Mm -hmm. And the same thing can happen with the written word. Uh, knowing what the, the secret is a little bit too soon. Um, and seeing too much gore right away, you're going to get desensitized to it. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Ichabod Ebenezer, talking about his collection of short stories, Beyond the Rail and Other Nightmares. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the things that have influenced his writing, some of his other work, and some other interesting bits. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors. If fiction, whether historical, murder mysteries, or spy thrillers take your fancy, check out Milford House Press. The mysteries of Sherry Knowlton, including her series with Detective Alexa Williams, are Sebastian Bennett's The Final Yen, works by Marika Biagio, such as The Model Spy and The Point of Vanishing, Hilary Hawk's Ashes to Song, or Love, Faith, and the Dented Bullet by Carolyn Kleinman. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypressbooks.com. We're back. My guest on the Brown Posey Press Show is Ichabod Ebenezer. He is the author of a set of short stories called Beyond the Rail and Other Nightmares. We've been talking about that, but we're going to get into a little of uh, Ichabod's history. Now, where did it begin for you? Because it always begins with reading either what you read or what is read to you. Tell us a little about yourself and what, uh, what interested you most as you were growing up. Um, so I'll tell you a bit of a story here, because okay. when I was very young, uh, reading was difficult for me. Mm -hmm. I remember looking at the primers and uh, just crying over how hard it was for me to sound out these words. Wow. And it was simple words like ant or boy and you know, things like that. Uh, so I didn't do much reading uh, that I wasn't forced to early on. And I think it was in second grade, um, we had to write a book report, but we could take any book out of the school library. And I found a book that was called The Fugitive Firebug 
And mm. I imagined it being basically a picture book with uh, some cute little animal that was just running away. But what it turned out to be uh, was above my reading level, but it was uh, a story about a kid who was accused of having set a fire and a boy detective who was trying to clear his name. Mm. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, it was nothing like anything I'd ever read, and it launched my love of reading. I immediately started checking out three or four books every week. And I went through C.S. Lewis and Madeline Langle and uh, just everybody I could get my hands on. By the time I was in fourth grade, I had pretty much read everything by Heinlein and Bradbury. Wow. And uh, since you mentioned Edgar Allan Poe before, I was a huge fan of his and had the entirety of The Raven memorized by fifth grade. Oh, wow. That's, you must, I, I, you would have been a kid. I would have enjoyed being around. I think that would have been, I would have been like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And, and how did, how did your peers see you? I mean, they must've, they must've thought, wow, this guy's like a bookworm or, or something other. I don't know. What did you, how was that for you as well? Uh, well, yeah, I didn't do terribly well with my peers. I was picked on quite a bit. And I had more than one book knocked out of my hands or mm-hmm. thrown into a trash can or things like that. But uh, most of them were library books, and I had another set of them the next week. So <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Uh, and I sure liked the books better than I liked any kind of attention I might have otherwise got. Yeah, I, I wasn't very good at making friends uh, very easily as well. And I found books were sometimes much better. <laughs> But when did you begin writing yourself? Uh, when when did you start to think that, hey, maybe I can do this myself? Um, well, so I I was told uh, back in high school that, you know, some of the stories that I told people that I should write them down mm-hmm. because they were engaging and things like that. And uh, I also was into role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. And uh, when we got done with the campaign, I was often told, you know, you should write that stuff down. You'd sell a million. Hmm. Um, So I did write a few back then, but most of those have been, you know, thrown away or lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I recently was uh, watching a lot of uh, Doctor Who and Firefly and, uh, you know, a few other shows like this, I was obsessing about them in between uh, seasons, and I found the world of fan fiction. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, most of it was kind of crap. <laughs> a lot of self-insertion fantasy or just an excuse to make, uh, you know, the two Winchester brothers unrelated so that they could <laughs> be a partner as well. So I started writing stuff that was that had rules to it. You had to be true to the story. Mm-hmm. You know, people had to be able to read it and say, "Yes, that looked like an episode of the show." Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, at a certain point, I started doing crossovers, and I had uh, you know the Doctor go and meet the cast of Firefly. Wow. 
and help to solve one of their problems. <laughs> and, you know, I think I've done some of that myself. I know that I did because long before I ever started writing, I would get into something like Lord of the Rings, for example, and, um, yeah, you, you sort of in your mind insert yourself into a story that's really cool because it, it just means so much to you. It gives you like a sense of belonging. Absolutely. Uh, I can tell you, I was, I was Legolas for sure at the age of uh, nine or 10 out That's in the cool. backyard, uh, you know, fighting with my brother with a couple of pond farms. Oh, excellent. I, <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit that I inserted my own self into the story and created a character that would fit kind of sort of with the different races a man, I guess, and I, but you never really were quite sure. And I didn't really develop him very well. I just sort of put him in there and gave him something to do. And um, But it, it made it engaging and it made it fun and it started to sort of, it, it starts to make your mind think, okay, what can I do with this? Let's write our yeah. own story. And I, you talk about fan fiction and I've written very little of it. But again, is do you think I just saw an article about it recently too that fan fiction is where you start and I think some people have I think some people have started but I'm wondering how hard it is to jump from fan fiction into into that original thing of your own was it difficult for you uh well no it turned out it was fairly easy for me to take the stories that I had already had in my head and put them down with the same kind of love and care. You just have to be ready to play in your own sandbox, one that you've built, mm -hmm. rather than one that's been already constructed for you. Um, it can be easier to work on, in fan fiction, um, although you know some of the rules I set up made it harder because I had to stick to them. Mm -hmm. But uh, still, you already had the setting crafted for you. You had characters that people already loved. You didn't have to go through all the trouble of introducing new characters to people and making them fall in love with them. Mm -hmm. But that's a very interesting self-discipline that you used, where you made a point of saying, okay, this needs to be believable within the, the context of the story. It wasn't just slash fiction. You went off and did... It sounds like you, you went forward and and wrote within within the rules you wrote within the lines and uh how did it feel because it's like i i noticed on your website you wrote an entire series of doctor who i'm like <laughs> yes oh man i, did. <laughs> I have doc i have whovian friends who would just be like he did what <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh with my uh my doctor who series i well, with all of my fiction, I wanted it to be able to be placed within their world such that it could be canon, that the the regular show has never said anything that contradicts what's in here and vice versa. So with The Doctor, this is really difficult to do. Mm -hmm. um, so what I ended up doing is setting mine far in the, the, the Doctor's own future that... Um, this was the nth doctor. Like it was well past 13, 14, 15 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, he makes references to lives that the TV show doctor has never led. Okay. 
but we'll see. Maybe. Certainly uh, intriguing, and yes, it's like a step forward. And um, in terms of sort of getting back to your short stories, there's the content required for X number of pages. As, as if we look at Beyond the Rail, um, are you more comfortable with the short form, or does the novel is it more appealing to you? Do you think? Um, no, I both of them really appeal to me. And as a matter of fact, when I'm writing a novel, sometimes I just need a break and I will look up and see what kind of uh, calls for publication various magazines are mm-hmm. doing. And, and I'll just write one out fairly quickly just to get out of the headspace that you, know, you have to be in for a long time to do a novel. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, sometimes I want to tell big stories. So the novel is definitely... Um, the majority of my focus. Mm-hmm. So it's love on both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you about a couple of these. Um, there's one that I think we have talked about before called Bloom and Decay. And mm-hmm. there is something sort of, sort of recap that for us and, and bring the readers to, to something else that you've done. Um, so this is about uh, a girl named Emily who's putting herself through college. Uh, and the only real talent that she has at the moment that's worth paying for is that she can speak to the dead. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is that she often doesn't get a lot of you know, customers. She tries to force herself onto people and say, hey, your grandma keeps bugging me. And she tells you this. Hmm. Um, so that was the, the basis for it. And uh, when she was getting rid of one of these pestering ghosts by explaining to the, you know, their granddaughter something, uh, somebody else overheard the conversation and had a, a real uh, family story about uh, lost treasure that she got drawn into. Mm-hmm. But the, the main thing that that drove me to write this piece was the, the concept that just because the spirits can't touch you doesn't mean that they can't harm you. And this was the story that came up around that. Interesting. And when you're writing in the long form, when you're writing the novel... I think you've given you've given us basically it's not so much the moral it's the central focus of the story those don't always come right away though I find it's like I'm not exactly sure why I'm putting something together and it's like somewhere down the line in a lot of my work it just suddenly says to me this is what you're trying to tell this is the truth here is your truth Uh, do you get those first or do they come later how does it's probably different for each one well what tends to happen is that like I said earlier, I'm writing one thing and I get this idea and I've got to write it down. Yeah. Well, when I finished with what I was intending to write, I go back to this list and I look through what's there. And sometimes I'll pick a few of these things out and go, those belong in the same world together. Right. This is one larger story. Mm-hmm. And and then I start uh, plotting. I know that there's there's plotters and there's pantsers in this world. And I believe it's actually a sliding scale between those. And I kind of land somewhere closer to the plotter side of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
sort of like one mapping. Of the first, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah, one of the first things I do with any story is try to outline it so that I will know how long it is, yeah. whether it's a short story or a novella or a novel. I do the same thing. <laughs> it's sort of like it's sort of like the it's sort of the order of battle of for me it's kind of like okay we know who the characters are we know who's doing things we're going to need some new ones as we go along but it's like chapter one will be this two three four but as i find almost from the get-go it's like okay i've got the first couple of chapters written i need to insert this is going to be chapter two a <laughs> and then that's just going to flip so it's sort of like yeah i, I do the plot i i generally try to plot and then it changes so i just have to get used to that <laughs> yes so it, it was famously said that no battle plan survives engagement with the enemy and that's exactly how it is with any kind of plot um, i like to have it all there so i know how long the story is going to be and also so that if i start to meander a little bit i can look back at it and either make changes to it mm-hmm. or it will help me get back on track that's cool well, speaking of another one here, here's another of your works, A Shadow Stained in Blood. This one, this was a this was a great mysterious one for me. Tell us a little about it. Yeah, so this was a 1930s um, crime uh, detective story. It's film noir as much as I could make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also takes place in Seattle, which in the 1930s, was an absolutely amazing place to be, right? You're stuck between two wars, um, and that really uh, creates an interesting environment for uh, a city that has so much devotion to the port and the kind of, um, uh, what is the word, the, the business that can be um, conducted there, right? right. Shipbuilding. Um, mm-hmm. freight shipping, things like that are really high during war times and then they just cut to practically nothing in between. Yep. So we have people um, at the end of a depression uh, at the, you know, the prohibition is over but it's still a recent memory, yeah. things like that. And we got some very wealthy people and some very poor people. Um, and Never in the history had there been more extreme examples of those. And you throw them all into a city that's really quite small uh, compared to a place like Los Angeles, New York, or San Francisco. And it's going to boil over. So it was a lot of fun to write that. And you live in Washington State. Now, now were you brought up there? Uh, no, I actually spent the first 25 years of my life in Southern California. Okay, because I thought but if, if I've you're been right, here longer now, so I'm native at this point. That's cool. <laughs> and the thing too is, you have being there as long as you have, you have a chance to learn about the history. You get you get to hear stories. You get to, you know, you can. There's so much to see in a city. There's so much to see in a state that makes it unique, and that's like that makes a better story if you've been there and you've sort of been immersed in it. Uh, yeah, and I am a deep researcher, so I tend to find out everything that's even tangentially related mm-hmm. and then put maybe 10% of that into the book. 
but the knowledge of all that has got to flavor things. And there are some characters in the real-life Seattle of 1930s that were just too unique not to put into the story. Wow. Like uh, Jesse Jackson, who was the mayor of Hooverville at the time. Mm-hmm. And the intriguing characters that become, you know, they were real once, and now it's like you're bringing them back to life, and it's like, you know, people would be like, this guy is too good to be, this this guy had to be real kind of thing. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's fun to try to bring a real one alive when it's like, I've had to go through that. I've had the quite of trying to use real characters and trying to be careful that you do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the possibility that somebody might know this person or that sort of thing. And I actually had the interesting thing in, in my book, Searching for Roy Buchanan, who is a real person, and uh, he passed away in 1988 under rather mysterious circumstances. And I was doing a book event at a blues festival and I had people coming up and looking at it and asking me about it. And they're like, I knew him. And immediately uh-huh. there's the chill of like, uh oh. And I'm like, so what, what was he like? And I was very fortunate to have been able to talk to somebody who did know him and was in his band. So that was helpful. And. I had other people come up and talk about, oh, I saw him play with so-and-so. Oh, my God, he was something else. And only one person asked me, says, do you look at his death? And I'm like, kind of on the periphery because I don't know. And the characters can't know. And I thought, uh-huh. out of respect, I have to do that for his for his family. And because leaving it up in the air is kind of probably the best thing to do. And they're like, yeah, cause we don't know either. So it's, it's hard to go there, isn't it? <laughs> oh, absolutely. That was a major concern for mine. I didn't want to show up at a book signing once I became famous and have someone throw the book down in front of me and say, I'm his grandson. And he was nothing like that. Mm-hmm. So that's where the discipline I was talking about earlier, yeah. being true to characters was a good starting point. Um, for Jesse Jackson, for instance, I put out um, you know, social media calls everywhere I could to see if there were any living relatives who could help me understand better. Because all I had from him were uh, a handful of pictures and one article that he wrote uh, in the Seattle Times. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well... What is next for, for you, Ichabod? What, what are you up to? What are you working on? Yeah. Well, I'm pitching a, uh, a fantasy story right now. Um, it doesn't exactly fit into any time period, like Middle Ages or whatever like that, because mm-hmm. it does happen in a different world. And uh, in the way that the world progressed was very different. Um, but it is dark, as readers of uh, of my short story collection might expect um and it's a lot of fun it at the moment it's called the corpse robber's daughter hmm. sounds like fun <laughs> <laughs> well and where can we find your books where can we uh, find you uh you can find me at the ichabod or if you search for my name on amazon you're sure to find it Okay. And my last question, and I always ask this of people, to anyone interested in writing, what's the best one piece of advice you can give? 
Um, stick to it. Um, you know, at the beginning, you might be emulating somebody else, but during the process, you're going to find your own voice. And the only way to get good is to do it a lot. Well, all right. Yeah. My guest is Ichabod Ebenezer. He's the author of Beyond the Rail and Other Nightmares and Other Works. Thank you for coming back on the show. I've been so happy to get to talk to you again. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, A Moment in the Sun, and Lie from the Cafe, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.